If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Well, here we go. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Riggenridge with you on the Chorus Radio Network. Thanks for being with us here. Our telephone number in Edmonton, 780-496-0063. In Calgary, 403-974-8255. A common thread between a couple of conversations we're going to have in this hour is things will be voting on this fall. One of them is senator-in-waiting elections. The Alberta legislature approved a motion yesterday calling on the prime minister to hold off on filling Alberta's two vacancies until we have an opportunity to vote for senators-in-waiting. We'll talk about that after 2.30. Of course, we're also going to be voting this fall on a question related to equalization. This is going to be an interesting process. I, I think it's more or less intended to be a question of do you like equalization, which I think overwhelmingly in Alberta, the answer is probably no. But do we understand equalization, how it works, what it's intended to do? Is this really going to accomplish anything? Now, what makes it more complicated is that this is a constitutionally framed question in order to put it on the ballot and hopefully obligate the federal government to some kind of negotiation. So it's about taking the principle of equalization out of the Constitution, which doesn't necessarily have any policy implications. Ultimately, equalization, like other federal transfers, is is a federal policy. But like I say, the question of what it is, what it's intended to do, how it works, I think is misunderstood. There's a great piece that's up this week at thehub.ca, uh, with, with a, I think, an important overview of these questions. And it's something our, our next guest has written a lot about, talked a lot about, and uh, joins us on the line here this afternoon to uh, wade into this uh, big debate. Trevor Toomey is an associate professor of economics at the University of Calgary, a research fellow at the School of Public Policy. Professor Toomey, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on. Always good to chat equalization. Yes, well, it's a, look, it's it's an interesting issue. I think as complex as it is, it, it mm-hmm. is it is interesting. And I mean, let's be clear right, right at the gate. You know, this piece you wrote uh, for the hub.ca, I mean, it, this isn't meant to be a, a defense of equalization per se, but it's more kind of an explainer. How, how do you approach it? Yeah, that's how I wanted to approach this piece. The referendum question will be asked in the fall is not about the details of the program itself or whether it can be reformed and redesigned. It's about removing the principle of equalization from the Constitution. And so I think it is important to understand how the principle found its way in the Constitution in the first place through all of the negotiations that took place in the 70s and 80s at the time that Peter Lougheed was the premier here. So he, in fact, was a, a pretty strong defender of the inclusion of the principle that those who live in provinces with weaker than average economies should be provided with assistance to ensure that reasonably comparable public services can be provided without them having to resort to 
high tax rates. So Lougheed called it a crucial aspect of Canadian Confederation, even though he strongly disagreed with a lot of the details of the formula and had lots of proposals for reform. It's interesting because the referendum question is specifically about Section 36.2, but there's also <laughs> Section 36.1, which also, right. you know, kind of addresses the principle. So that's kind of the murky constitutional waters. But let's let's yeah. expand on that point, because equalization as a policy did exist prior to that. So what what is the intent uh, of equalization? That, that, that's a really great point and, and a great question. So let me touch on 36. I'm sorry, question, uh, yeah, 36 part one. This is a, a multi-part clause in the Constitution, but one critical part in there is that governments are committed to providing uh, quality public services to Canadians, kind of regardless of where they where they live. 36.2 adds to that by saying that your ability to provide reasonably comparable public services uh, is not going to require you resort to above average levels of of taxation. So if you're a lower income province, if your PEI, where average household incomes are $69,000 a year compared to 100000 in Alberta, their tax rates to raise the same number of dollars would need to be much higher than in Alberta. So 36.2 is a complement to 36.1. But you're right, equalization, it didn't start in 1982. Uh, it, it started in its modern form in 1967, goes back even further to 1957. But even prior to a program called equalization, federal transfers to provinces that provide additional support to those that have fiscal need has been a part of the system of Canadian finances from the very beginning. It was part of the original 1867 Constitution. So that idea of bringing provinces together, ensuring that poor provinces have support, is kind of a necessary part of how Canada has approached uh, a federation, a very decentralized one, where provinces have responsibility for health care, education, and so on. And then the feds provide financial transfers uh, so that they can actually execute on their mm-hmm. responsibilities. And it's important to point out because it is true, obviously, that Alberta is, I mean, not over this past year, but Alberta is mm-hmm. a net contributor to Confederation. Uh, more comes out of Alberta than comes back to Alberta. And we can have a conversation about how and why that is or how to address that. But I guess it should be noted that that really doesn't have anything to do with equalization. If we change the program, that's not going to affect either side of the ledger for Alberta, is it? Not necessarily. It, it, we could eliminate equalization completely, and nothing would happen to federal tax rates in any automatic sense. You can imagine the government um, just shrinks its deficit and does nothing else. And so the contribution Alberta makes to the federal budget is larger on a per capita basis than than other regions, but that's because our incomes are higher. And so federal taxes raise more dollars from uh, people who live in Alberta than from elsewhere. So deleting equalization doesn't itself connect directly into those broader fiscal imbalances. And I guess I should note explicitly that it's perfectly reasonable to have concerns over how much redistribution across regions takes place. And it's perfectly reasonable to point out lots of shortcomings in the equalization program. I know that uh, Bill Buick, um, an Albertan here behind Fairness Alberta, who I think has been on your yeah. program before, it has lots of really concrete, specific, completely reasonable uh, suggestions that 
reasonable people can agree or disagree on. And, and that's a really productive conversation to be had. But the referendum's not about any of that. It's not about how much redistribution takes place. It's not about the design details of the formula. It's about the principle of whether the federal government should help provinces with weak economies deliver public services. Well, and there's another point. It's uh, Ken Bostonkul who's, who's made this point, and I've spoken to him about it before. That you know, this is you know that Alberta should look at it this way: that you know, absent programs like equalization, there would be more pressure on the federal government to take responsibility for these things the provinces provide. That Alberta would probably be far worse off if the federal government decided it was going to take control of healthcare, if it decided it was going to take control of education. What, what do you make of that? Uh, that is that is a very strong argument, and the roots of that argument can be traced all the way back to uh, John Diefenbaker, uh, Western Prime Minister from, from Saskatchewan. In 1957, the Liberal government under St. Laurent brought in equalization, and, and Diefenbaker did not campaign against equalization. He campaigned in support of it. He wanted some reforms. That really doesn't matter for our purposes here, but he supported it precisely because... It was a program that would facilitate decentralization. And he was quite concerned explicitly in their platform that if there was no equalization for those lower-income provinces, then the pressure on the feds to deliver health care and education would mount. And that would lead to centralization in Ottawa. So it's a program that helps uh, our decentralized federation exist. So it's a program that would appeal to someone who thinks that provinces should be responsible for core public services and who likes a decentralized approach to governance. And I think that's, that's Ken's take. You got an interesting graph in, in your piece, um, which, which looks at it on a per capita basis. New Brunswick and Prince Edward Island are the biggest recipients. Quebec, on a per capita basis, receives about half of what New Brunswick does. But obviously, Quebec's a big province. Right. That's a big check. That leads to a lot of big political debates. But I wonder if you could address, you know, the one issue that comes up a lot regarding hydro revenues in Quebec, mm -hmm. whether we're properly accounting for those revenues, whether those revenues are artificially lower than they should be. How does that factor in? So hydro revenues are a resource revenue. So they are included in the formula. So when Hydro-Quebec sells electricity, gets revenue, that profit is remitted to the Quebec government, that's a resource revenue that is counted in the formula. And what this does is Quebec may have an incentive to lower its electricity prices so that Hydro-Quebec has less revenue, less profit, less resource revenue is then counted. So they might appear to have a lower fiscal capacity than they, quote, really do. And that's a longstanding concern, so it's nothing new. It's been an issue for uh, four decades. And Quebec indeed does have really low electricity prices. And just given how much it generates, if it could just increase its electricity prices by a couple of cents uh, per kilowatt hour, then this would be worth many billions of dollars uh, to their government from Hydro-Quebec and many billions of dollars in smaller equalization payments. And yeah. that's an important issue. I, I find it hard to defend the current design and its treatment of hydro revenues. It's certainly, uh, certainly an issue. But I view that as an issue of practical implementation rather than the principle of the program itself. Right. So, I mean, if we're looking at ways of 
of improving the program or changing, and that might be one area to address. I mean, obviously, we want to ensure that Ottawa is managing its finances properly. And want to ensure that we're not discouraging provinces from you know exploring economic opportunities and yeah. you know becoming have provinces at some point. What, what changes stand out to you though that that might be practical and, and meaningful? Right. So I think there's there's a couple of real low hanging fruit here uh, for the feds to consider, and that is first. There's a fixed pool of dollars available to be paid out. And right now, the formula itself doesn't want to pay out those dollars. And so we have what are called adjustment payments that are layered on top of the regular equalization payments. And and those are quite large and potentially slated to grow much larger, maybe two to three billion dollars next year. So we could simply eliminate that fixed pool and revert back to a formula-driven equalization program that uh, Prime Minister Harper originally brought in in 2007. So unwinding some of the reforms that we brought in kind of as a short-term expedient during the financial crisis, really go back to uh, what Harper implemented in 2007. That would be savings for the federal government, returning the program to more principled approach to equalization. That's one of these things that I think should be on the table. But longer term, uh, I'm generally of the view that we should just blow up the whole thing and have equalization payments allocated based strictly on economic strength, so GDP per capita. So you wouldn't need to worry about resource revenues or tax rates. Just be a very simple calculation where we provide support to provinces that have weak economies, and that's it. Well, simpler is often better. That might be a good example of it. Uh, again, we'll uh, direct people to this piece. It's up at thehub.ca, a really good overview of all of these issues. Trevor Toom, always appreciate it. Thanks for making time for us here today. My pleasure. You take care. All the best. You as well. That is Trevor Toom, Associate Professor, Economics, University of Calgary, Research Fellow of the School of Public Policy. You can read his piece. It's up at thehub.ca. I mean, the timing seems fortuitous. We've got two Senate vacancies right now in Alberta, uh, two of the six, and we are going to be voting this fall in conjunction with the municipal election for some senators in waiting. So certainly the prerogative is there for the prime minister to appoint the top two finishers from that race to the upper chamber. Obviously, two of uh, Alberta's sitting senators uh, are elected, Scott Tannis and, and Doug Black. Now, the problem is the broader cause of Senate reform really did hit a wall following that Supreme Court reference case. And even the idea of making the upper chamber, more broadly speaking, elected, would probably entail some constitutional changes. But I don't think that has to prevent the prime minister from appointing these two individuals because the prime minister still has the prerogative to appoint individuals to the Senate. So yesterday, Alberta legislature members voted to pass a motion which calls on the prime minister to respect Alberta's upcoming Senate vote to hold off on appointing anyone to those vacancies and then to ideally appoint uh, the top two candidates from this uh, upcoming election. Joining us to talk more about the uh, motion, the debate yesterday, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Layla Goodridge, uh, UCP MLA for Fort McMurray, Lac Labish. Layla, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you, and thanks for having me. So talk a bit about the impetus behind this motion. What, what are we hoping uh, that the messages that this sends? Well, you know what? Um, here in Alberta, we, we've got a long track record of 
choosing our senators and uh, Albertans want and deserve a say in who represents us in the Senate. And last night, the legislature had a golden opportunity to stand together and give unanimous consent to this motion and send an exceptionally clear message to Ottawa. So the message is, is to what? Well, the message is that Alberta wants and deserves to have a say in who represents us in the Senate. Um, while Albertans have a lot of different opinions, we largely believe in an elected, effective, and equal Senate. Uh, in fact, I, that's something I very strongly believe in. Uh, it was part of the reason why I actually got into politics when I was in high school was uh, over uh, the idea of Senate reform. And so Alberta currently has two vacant Senate seats, and there is a chance that Justin Trudeau could appoint people into the, these roles this summer. Uh, we know that he's already appointed two unelected senators for Alberta, and we wanted to tell him that this isn't how we do things here. Why does it matter, you think, the idea of well, electing senators? It, it matters so much because not only do our elected senators stand up for us in, in important ways, um, they, they really do uh, help push the idea of more broadly the Senate reform uh, within that chamber. And, and our two elected senators, uh, Senator Doug Black and Senator Scott Tannis, do such a spectacular job at representing our province um, and really pushing um, the ideas of the electorate because they had to get elected, so they are better in touch with the electorate. Well, it's true they did have to get elected. I think part of the problem with how, how the Senate works is once you're in, you're in, right? And so elected senators don't have to be re-elected then, do they? Well, it, there's a lot to be uh, had with our uh, process and our system, but mm -hmm. this is a very good step in the right direction. And quite frankly, Alberta's already been without two senators for over 160 days, and we can afford to wait an extra 125 days uh, or so, so that Albertans can have a say in who they should have representing them in that chamber. Well, I mean, look, there, that, that opportunity is there. I mean, if the prime minister is considering some appointments, he should be upfront and transparent in, in what's going on here. I, I don't imagine he's made anything aware to, to the Alberta government of anything or anyone he's considering. So would it be a slap in the face of just, you know, out of nowhere tomorrow or next week, he, he announced two new senators? Well, you know what? I think it really would um, be against democracy. Um, it's It's a something that Albertans really do believe in, the idea of the Triple E Senate. Um, we have a strong tradition in this province, as I've stated before. Uh, we've held Senate nominee elections four times in our history, and we've had five democratically selected senators who have been appointed to the Senate, and all of them have done an amazing job at representing our province in that chamber and continuing to push this message. It's interesting because, I mean, yeah, you're right. I mean, the, these were big issues in the late 80s, early 90s. You know, it was one of the issues the Reform Party was founded on. Um, you know, in the debate yesterday, the opposition suggested that, you know, maybe these are, are issues from a, a bygone era, that, you know, what was relevant in the 80s, not necessarily relevant today. What, what do you say in response to that? Well, I, I would strongly disagree with that. I think it's just as important today as it was in in the 80s when this came up it, for the first time. And uh, I'm going to continue pushing this. And I know many of my colleagues in the legislature will continue pushing uh, this because it is the right thing to do. 
You know, as I mentioned in the introduction, I mean, you know, to, to his credit, uh, Prime Minister Stephen Harper sought uh, the Supreme Court's advice on this, to, you know, to the extent to which he could make some changes or how much of this involved, you know, having to, to open up the Constitution. I think, un- unfortunately, it ended up being from the Supreme Court, a lot of it falling on the ladder. And I don't know to what extent that kind of took a lot of the steam out of the uh, whole issue of, of Senate reform. I think it, it's it's an uphill battle, to put it mildly. I mean, beyond these Senate elections, is is there much that the Alberta government can do to bring about that kind of change? Well, at this point, there are two vacancies, and we have two choices. These vacancies can either be filled democratically or undemocratically. Those are the only two options available, and we are urging the federal government to allow Albertans to have a say so that we can fill these vacancies in a democratic manner. Well, I guess the ball's in the Prime Minister's court. Uh, For now, we're set to vote uh, coming up uh, this fall for some uh, senators in waiting, and we'll see what the Prime Minister chooses to do. Layla Goodridge, we'll leave it there. Thanks for making some time for us here today. Appreciate it. Thanks, and have a wonderful day. You as well. Layla Goodridge, there you go. Uh, UCP MLA for Fort McMurray, Lac LaBiche, talking about yesterday's debate and vote in the Alberta legislature, the debate around this motion and the vote to approve it. Which, again, I mean, you know, this doesn't bind the prime minister, obviously. It's certainly Justin Trudeau's call in terms of uh, who fills those vacancies. But it is interesting that we have gone this long without them being filled. I, I think it would be, regardless of what you think about the idea of electing senators, I think at this point to wait this late in the game to all of a sudden throw two new senators in there, I mean, I think it would be a slap in the face. Let's be honest. Because, <laughs> well, then why didn't you do it months ago? And if you were content to let this go months and months and months, then what, why is there all of a sudden an urgency now? You know, Alberta's what, August, September, October, three months, uh, July, August, I don't know three or four months away, <laughs> you can do the math, it's it's not that far off. So we'll be uh, going to the polls and, yeah, look, I mean, you know, these are province-wide elections, so the winners do have, you know, quite a, a claim to some democratic mandate in terms of hundreds of thousands of votes. There were the moment two declared candidates, one of them is um, uh, affiliated with the UCP, the other is, uh, I think, some kind of Senate abolitionist or something. So anyway, there's there's two candidates. I assume there won't be more um, before too long here. The problem is, I guess, and this is the other frustrating side of it. Look, this goes all the way back to 1989, Stan Waters. We elected uh, our first senator. But we've been going it alone on this. Like, where are the other provinces to step up and say, yeah, we're going to do this too. We also believe in the idea of democratic legitimacy for those who sit in the upper chamber. So that's been frustrating. We haven't seen other provinces um, take up the, the helm on this, and it's been Alberta alone. So ultimately, if it's status quo, other than a few elected senators from Alberta, does that really amount to much when it comes to actually reforming the upper chamber? I mean, it's something, I guess, but it's in, in the grand scheme of things, it's unfortunately not a lot. There's, there's no re-election for these senators. It's still a lifetime appointment. So whatever they say or promise to, to get elected, there's obviously nothing that makes them beholden to any of that because they don't ever have to face the voters again. So that's frustrating, but that's how it is. Obviously, you know, the other E's and triple E equal, well, we're certainly not there. 
effective. Well, I mean, you know, it's it's what it has been for for many years. I think the Senate can be effective if it chooses to be, but doesn't often uh, use that power. And then there's the other question: Well, should they? Should an unelected Senate override the will of the elected members of Parliament? I mean, that's that's a long-standing dilemma in Canadian politics. Electing senators removes that. But um, it seems only Alberta's interested. So we can talk about that. Your thoughts on, uh, you know, whether this does still matter. I mean, the Triple E Senate used to be a huge issue. I mean, it does. I'll admit it doesn't come up a lot these days. Does that mean it's fallen off the radar, that we've kind of written it off, we've given up? So... Anyway, your thoughts on that and what, what it would say to you if the prime minister does ignore, which he probably will, let's be honest, if he does end up ignoring these um, Senate-awaiting elections by appointing someone either before or appointing someone different after the fact. Welcome back. Well, it's been a busy uh, few days, obviously, for our prime minister, who uh, traveled abroad for the first time in a long time to attend the G7 summit in the UK, the NATO summit in Brussels. And uh, obviously, that meant uh, a whole lot of people uh, tagging along, including media who were there, too, to cover both of these summits. Uh, everybody's now back in Canada. It seems uh, today is uh, the day of uh, negative test results. The Prime Minister, we're told, is uh, tested negative on his arrival test. He's free to leave the hotel quarantine. Uh, same goes for our next guest. Uh, from what we've heard today, Abigail Beeman is um, on the line with us here this afternoon, global national Ottawa correspondent who was uh, along covering uh, the, the big trip to uh, the UK and Belgium and joins us on the line here this afternoon. Abigail, great to have you with us. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So you are, are sprung from hotel quarantine, I understand? That's right. From You made it sound very exciting there from Europe uh, all the way to my <laughs> house now where I'm home quarantining for the next two weeks. So you, like anybody else, I guess, returning to Canada, so you, you well, and we, I guess we can talk, you were tested a lot by the sounds of it in, in covering all of this. So you arrived, you had to take a test, that test has come back negative, so that means that you now get to go finish your quarantine at home, right? Yeah, that's right. And we could spend this whole hit talking about the testing because I found that so yes. interesting. The majority of te- we we're now on test number nine. There will be one more test, which is test 10 on day eight of quarantine. But over a six day trip, there were nine uh, COVID tests. And one of the most interesting things as a Canadian was that the majority of those tests were self-administered. So I had to learn how to wow. do my own both PCR and rapid tests, which to me was more challenging, I think, in some ways than covering the G7 and NATO summits. But a big learning curve there uh, and uh, certainly an interesting part of this first trip uh, during the pandemic or the first time the prime minister has traveled since the pandemic began. Yeah, no kidding. And I mean, there is some significance in that. Obviously, these these were eventful summits that, that we need to talk about. But uh, yeah, I, I am kind of fascinated by all of that because, you know, it's it's very unique. I assume it's been a very long time since you've been on a, a plane to anywhere. Well, exactly. Um, I, I tweeted on my way over there that it had been so long that I tried to use the ashtray to open the door to the bathroom because I'd forgotten wow. what it was like to be on the plane, which was obviously tongue in cheek. But but yes, I mean, I uh, was in Washington covering in our D.C. bureau when the pandemic began that March 13th, 2020 date. And that was the uh, the last flight, the flight to get home that I had taken. So certainly a long time uh, for many people. And there are obviously, and I did this story on should the prime minister be traveling, there are obviously many Canadians who have not traveled because they 
they listen to the government saying now mm-hmm. is not the time to do so, and lots of people who who want to go on various trips, whether to see to see family or or, or for vacation or whatever, but they're not uh, doing right right now because of the pandemic. So really, a lot of interesting elements uh, to this trip. But uh, like you say, the first in person G summit uh, G seven summit meeting in uh, in two years, uh, and uh, the first time that the prime minister traveled abroad since. Uh, I believe his last trip was February 2020, one month before uh, the, the uh, I guess, unofficial official start to the uh, to the pandemic. Yeah, and it's interesting because it, it did become an issue whether the prime minister was going to walk the walk when it came to hotel quarantine. I mean, it wasn't in one of the four designated cities, but um, there there was the setup in in Ottawa because obviously you're all traveling on the prime minister's plane. The prime minister's plane arrives in Ottawa, so this was technically, I guess, a hotel quarantine, but not a, an official hotel quarantine. You know, I really think that the answer to that depends on who you ask. And I wrote an analysis piece about that before the trip because it was garnering uh, so much attention. Uh, The Prime Minister in the House of Commons at one point in response to the Conservatives that were really hammering and still are hammering on this issue, uh, the Prime Minister said, I will be staying in a government-approved airport hotel but there are no government-approved quarantine hotels in Ottawa, which is sort of adding fuel to this to this fire here. So, I, I, I mean, on the other side of it, people are saying, what's the difference? The point is that he's quarantining. He's going to stay in a hotel like he's asked everybody else to do. And, and that is the, the truth at the end of the day that the Prime Minister uh, and the rest of us have committed to a uh, 14-day quarantine. Uh, and that hotel stay uh, was until that PCR, that PCR test came back. And I think... I think nobody was under the impression that there may be a chance for a positive here, just given the num the sheer number of tests that we were taking that whole trip, and that includes the prime minister as well. Well, let's touch on on the what happened on the trip. Obviously, the the G seven <laughs> summit in the UK, and and you know this first face to face gathering since this pandemic of all of these world leaders, and clearly that the pandemic loomed large over this summit. Uh, what, what stood out as as the big topics of conversation? There were a few uh, on the pandemic. I think the number one topic, and, and certainly what the what Boris Johnson, the UK Prime Minister, wanted to make the headline out of this was this commitment to to quote vaccinate the world by the end of next year. Uh, there's. There is no way that that will happen based on what uh, leaders agreed to. Uh, the big commitment there was, it's a bit confusing there in the wording, but they basically committed to 1 billion uh, new vaccines or, or new doses of vaccine for, for uh, people in developing countries by the end of next year. And then they sort of turned it into a 2 billion commitment, and that included what people had already given previously. Canada's portion of that is 100 million doses. However, the vast majority of that, 87 million doses, comes from previous commitments through COVAX, 13 million will be some of our surplus supply. But if you ignore all those numbers that I just gave you, I think the key number to to think of is the World Health Organization that has repeatedly stated and stated again during the G7, we need 11 billion doses if we were to vaccinate the entire world. And, and here these these uh, G7 leaders came together and, and committed either one or two billion or less than that, depending on how you want to look at it. So there's the point is that there's still a huge gap here. Uh, and and, uh, and aid groups are, are further concerned that it's one thing to commit a dose, which is great and everybody's happy about that. But it's another to actually figure out how to get it to some of these remote, rural, hard to reach places, uh, countries where a vaccine has 
residency is really high and you need education campaigns along with just sort of throwing money at some doses. So did they solve all the world's problems? I, I don't think so, but certainly taking some steps in that important direction of trying to to vaccinate the world. Another topic on that that I, that I covered again yesterday for my piece on Global National was this question of whether to waive patent rights for drug makers mm-hmm. in terms of getting more vaccines and, and making them. And that's still a battle that's really raging at the WTO, the World Trade Organization. There, there hasn't been a solution there. We also don't have any uh, consensus on uh, vaccine passports that came out of this. So certainly some topics high on the agenda, but uh, no, the, the issues really have not all been solved around the pandemic. Uh, and, and while the pandemic, as you say, was very high on the agenda, also um, some other some other big topics were discussed, how to deal with Russia and with China, uh, especially uh, especially China at the G7. And, and of course, that's a subject uh, extremely important to Canada with the two detained Canadians, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor, who are sitting in Chinese prisons uh, right now. So that, that was a big issue. And uh, the, the, interestingly, as the, a big theme was climate change as well uh, at the G7 summit. And the, this is especially important to the United Kingdom as they're leading the COP uh, summit in November. So important for, for Boris Johnson to put that high on the agenda. And then I'd also point out that aside from the agenda, I think the big star or shining moment or thing to highlight is that is of course American President Joe Biden. And this was the first G7 without Donald Trump. So really the pressure was on to to put this united front forward and say, hey, the, here are these similar minded leaders uh, coming together for the for the first time with of course Joe Biden at the center of that of that focus. Yeah, it was interesting because obviously these are multilateral summits, but but a lot of these issues from Canada's perspective are kind of bilateral. When we talk about China, it's, you know, are we working in conjunction with the U.S.? Is the U.S. taking up the cause uh, of the two Michaels? You know, a lot of questions for the prime minister. Have you spoken to to President Biden? Uh, right. You guys talked about the border. So, the, you know, the, the Trudeau-Biden dynamic really seemed to be a, an important factor in all of this. Yeah, and that's interesting when you talk about bilateral meetings because that's what you do at these summits. You know, you, you sit down with the big plenary sessions and the main event with the seven people around the table. Uh, and important, as, as every G7 watcher will tell you, is that these are, these are more intimate summits because you have only seven leaders around a table rather than, you know, 20 at the G20 or 30 at NATO, whatever. Uh, so there is more opportunity to have, to make your voice heard and to share thoughts. But on the sidelines, as they say, of the summit of the of these main events, uh, are these bilateral meetings. So, so the, these seven leaders will interchange with each other and sit down in one-on-one sessions. And the prime minister did not have an official, formal sit-down meeting with Joe Biden. He did with, I believe, all other six of, uh, or I guess you don't count himself there. So, all other five of the uh, G7 leaders, he had these sit-down meetings with them. He did not have one with Joe Biden. It was something that I almost got the sense that he was sort of uh, defensive about in that in his closing press conference, basically the first thing he said was, I met with all the leaders of these countries, including Joe Biden, and we talked about, you know, X, Y, and Z. So yes, they had some moments on the sides. We call them pull asides, I guess, in summit speak. They had these pull asides and they had uh, some, some some time to connect, but there wasn't this official sit-down uh, meeting, with which some people thought was significant, other pe- others thought wasn't significant, But but there you go. And it'll be interesting, too. I mean, we, you know, we may have an election this year, and it's anyone's guess how much longer Justin Trudeau is going to be prime minister, but he's almost becoming uh, kind of the, the elder statesman of, of this G7 group, isn't he? 
Well, yeah, that's an important point as well. He, he will be the, the, the most senior person when uh, the German Chancellor retires, and that's happening this fall. She's announced uh, she, she, she will be retiring, won't be seeking re-election as of the fall, and that puts Justin Trudeau, who now has five uh, summits under his belt as the, the, most, the most senior leader around that table, which is an interesting thought, comes close to French President Emmanuel Macron, and you really saw Macron sort of trying to step it up and take center stage there. If, uh, he, he really Try to in any way in the in the you know, of course worth noting that we only see small moments of the summit, but in whenever the cameras were rolling, you saw him sort of trying to get Joe American President Joe Biden's ear uh, and 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 take that uh, center stage position. But uh, yes, our Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has has longer serving time um, than than any of the remaining leaders. And by the way, I was just curious because I saw the Prime Minister got to tour the uh, Pfizer plant in in Belgium. Yeah. Did did you all get to to go in as well? Oh, that's a funny question that you asked because there was some oh, sort really? of mix-up and half of the reporters got to go in with the Prime Minister and I was in the unlucky half, I guess, that wasn't on that tour, but then oh, they gave dear. us a quick tour of our own. So um, <laughs> I'm not sure how many of your questions I can answer on that, but I know there was a pack of Belgian media who were also there um, for that tour as well. So uh, yeah, so we, we did, we were shown some of these ultra-cold freezers that everybody talks about and a little bit of some of the packaging there, but I guess I got the B-list tour in that. Right. Well, my tongue-in-cheek question would be whether they were giving out free samples. But I know, you I, know what? That's what everybody asked. They wanted. They were like, "Go to the gift shop, bring us a T-shirt." Yes, exactly. I thought, you know, I can. It was not on the agenda. I would just imagine it's it's quite an operation they've got set up there. Yes. Uh, yeah, it really is, and I and I feel that you know I really only got to see a small portion of that, but it, it's a, a massive plant, and they really talked to us about how much they've just expanded their staff um, and been growing uh, before before the COVID nineteen pandemic. But of course, like they were once they were developing their vaccine, they were ramping up that facility long before they got approval for that their vaccine because of what a massive operation it is, right? And how much uh, goes into vaccinating the world and figuring out systems for how to get vaccines places. We were looking at these. Um, um, these uh, these ultra-cold freezers and, and taking some photos of them. And they said, oh, you can't take photos of the barcode because that gives all the information yeah, for where nice. these freezers are being shipped to all over the world. And it's really obviously a complex and massive <laughs> undertaking when you think about it, especially for this vaccine, the Pfizer vaccine, that has more specific uh, temperature requirements than some of the others. Well, full coverage of all of this uh, at uh, globalnews.ca. Abigail, we'll just get back to uh, quarantining, but uh, appreciate making some time for us here today. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. All right, cheers. Uh, that's uh, Abigail Beeman, uh, Global National Ottawa correspondent, uh, just back uh, from UK and Belgium. And like the Prime Minister and everybody else, now doing uh, the quarantine. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.